Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. In this episode, I'm going to talk about biodynamic farming and wine, and Emily is going to talk about a piece of music that is inspired by a clock, that it, there are certain flowers that bloom according to the hours of the day, and, you know, just keep listening. It's all about flowery things here on Scores and Pours today. Check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Happy flowery day, Emily Reese. Happy flowery day to you too, Jill Mott. Here in Minnesota, the sun is shining, but it's still quite monochromatic in our fair state slash city, I would say. So it's fun yeah. to talk about um, some things that have some color. Yes, lots of And vibrancy of color. in life. Yes. You're going to talk about biodynamic farming, if I may say so. And I'm going to talk about a piece by a French composer that we've never talked about before. And it's a piece about a flower clock. The creating a garden that blooms according to certain times of the day. And as much as f- folks may listen to this and, you know, we have a lot of themes that cross over mm-hmm. and this could, in theory, kind of sound a little kitschy or a little, you know, like flower clock and then what, but like farming or well, like flower yeah. days because we're going to talk about the yeah. biodynamic calendar. In theory, I think wines that are done in a biodynamic fashion and then if they're done in a, in a natural way, so without a lot of sulfur added, Mm -hmm. indigenous yeast, what have you, not filtered. Um, They tend to have a lot of, a lot more life to them, a lot more vitality. Um, Biodynamics has everything to do with vitality. And I think this piece is extremely vital in how, in its changes, Mm -hmm. it's very um, dynamic. And I think, you know, Biodynamics, it's in its name. It's very dynamic. And so I think that there's actually quite quite a bit of crossover. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's going to be great. Who do I let's can we start with some music? Tell yeah, me about this new composer. Uh, this composer named Jean Francais, and he is French, and he was around in the 20th century. And Jean Francais died actually in like 1997. Yeah. So from 1912 to 1997, bit of a child prodigy, had musical parents, and he ended up studying with a woman named Nadia Boulanger. Which is really cool, but it's very cool, especially for his age. Mm-hmm. Pretty much any composer who was anyone in the early 20th century studied with Nadia Boulanger. So it's not like it's not like a, a like oh he studied with Nadia Boulanger. It's like well everybody did. Oh okay. But everybody did because she was a great teacher too. So it's awesome. You know what I mean? AKA badass. Yeah, she taught Sweet. at a conservatory in France. In Fontainebleau, Fontainebleau, Fontaine, I can't remember where it is, but in any event, that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about Jean Francais and that he was a a really special composer in that he was very prolific. He wrote a couple hundred works and always just had a really personal, unique style that didn't change very much over the course of his lifetime. So he wrote this uh, oboe concerto. He was commissioned by the oboist, and we'll talk about the oboist too because he's a, a really cool story as well. That's John Delancey. John correct? Delancey. And okay. uh, Star Trek fans and Days of Our Lives fans from the 80s would know uh, John Delancey's son, John Delancey, but we'll talk about that later too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but anyway, there's, yeah, so we're going to talk about um, this piece and uh, John Delancey being the principal oboist for the Philadelphia Orchestra for many, many years, commissioned a lot of works from a lot of people, most famous for uh, literally door knocking on Richard Strauss's door when John Delancey was stationed in Europe in World War II and literally like asked Richard Strauss why he'd never written an oboe concerto. <laughs> And Richard Strauss is like 800 years old at this point. He's like super <laughs> old. And it was one of the last pieces he ended up writing was his oboe concerto. It's a great oboe concerto. So John Delancey is a big deal in the world of oboe and uh, and therefore in the world of classical music because he got all these great pieces commissioned, including this one from Jean Francais called L'Horloge de Fleur, de Flore, L'Horloge de Fleur. L'Horloge de Fleur. God damn. French, I can't do it. <laughs> it's so hard. I wish I could. It's so beautiful. Uh, it 
the flower clock is what is this piece. And it's an oboe concerto, uh, which means there's a solo oboist with an orchestra. And there's seven movements, but it's all continuous. It's about a 15, 16-minute piece. And uh, Jean-Francais Jean goes through the, the clock, the 24-hour clock, and has flowers that bloom at a certain point. And, you know, that's how the movements play out. So, so the each, first one, 3 a.m. Yeah. And and then it's named after, so like Galant de Jour, like poisonberry. Poisonberry. The, in, Fran in French, of course, the name of the flower, but there's a you can look for translations of, yeah. of each of them. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. And supposedly that hour represents the approximate hour at which said flower blooms. Would bloom, yeah. Cool. So poisonberry apparently opens at 3 in the morning, which is amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's the first movement. So, you know, the first movement gives gives the oboist a chance to just really play this lovely, very twentieth century French, uh, thickly uh, har harmonized kind of just really thick chords. Uh, there's a lot of jazz influence in this piece too, which is cool. Cool. And uh, yeah, it's real fun. So let's just listen to a little bit of the first movement, just so we can get some music going. Yeah, one thing I th I would like to point out to people is um, Jean Francais did say that he wanted to, as he was writing, not this specific piece, but all of his music, he wanted his he wrote his music with the intention to to give ple quote unquote give pleasure. Yeah. And I think when you listen to this piece, there's nothing about it that doesn't there's some yeah. there's a little bit that sounds maybe perhaps a little bit more solemn but not really you know yeah. if we're thinking that it's it's nine at night and something is blooming you know maybe <laughs> yeah. maybe you know the day is a quote quote unquote coming you know to a close mm -hmm. yeah. um so yeah I, I don't know i i think that um it's it's fun to listen to again the like the vitality and the, yeah. the joyous quality of these movements named after flowers yeah let's listen And we are going to listen to John Delancey himself play this piece. Cool. So that's cool. typical of light classical music in the early 20th century, mid-20th century. Poisonberry? It's in the potato family. See, I didn't... <laughs> I don't know this. It's in the potato family. It is primarily grown in kind of Europe and, and Asia. And if you look at it, the flower is so beautiful. It looks kind of like a stargazer lily, but instead of it having kind of the typical like coral, pink, white, it's like this beautiful, deep purple color. I don't know. Super, super interesting. And then the fruits are... They look like like really tiny little footballs that are like shiny fire engine red color. Yes. So, which is cool. Look yeah. look it up. Look up Poisonberry, Poisonberry. as you're listening to this because it's it's very pretty. So that's just a little taste. There's so much more to talk about with this piece, including what the heck a flower clock is in the first place and where Jean-Francais Jean got that idea. So, yeah. So let's drink. Yeah. Let's drink and talk about kind of the beginnings of biodynamics. And we're pouring today a bottle of wine from Stefano Bellotti from Casina delle, uh, Degli Ulivi, who he's not the father of biodynamic wines in Italy by any stretch of the imagination, but he did make it 
well-known, spread that word. He wore that banner as a very humble, basically peasant farmer. And now his wines are treasured the world over. He did pass away two years ago, unfortunately, and so we're drinking his last vintage that he made, uh, the 2018 Bellotibol Le Pendu du Raison. But we'll talk more about the wine later. Let's talk about biodynamics. Let's. Cheers. Scores and pours. Scores and pours. Ooh, yum. I could take a bath in this wine. It smells like dough, too. I love how it if there was a floral kombucha, yes, with like wow, w- like seriously white grapes. It sounds dumb because this is made with Moscato Bianco and Cortese, both white grapes. Okay, but it smells grapey, mm-hmm. floral, which mm-hmm. is one another reason why I brought it, um, mm-hmm. because Moscato generally gives off a very floral profile. So biodynamics is a way of farming and agricultural, their agricultural practices that were developed in like the 1920s. It's hard to put like an exact date, but a gentleman by the name of Rudolf Steiner, who was born in present day Croatia, he basically developed a type of farming that you're paying attention is really what you're doing. And your end result is going to create extremely healthy soil and with healthy soil, all things are happening, mm-hmm. right? All things mm-hmm. great, healthy. So you have healthy soil that in the end, you're going to have a very like holistic and functioning property that is working in accordance to the moon calendar. You've got astrology happening and, and working with, when we say cosmic forces, that's why people don't believe in biodynamics because yeah. they're like, WTF about cosmic forces. But in the end, people that see that this basically what you have to do in biodynamics to follow those practices, it's just making the farmer be more aware of what's going on Mm because they some people aren't dogmatic about it. But Mm -hmm. doing the preps and applying them at the right times just makes you go around and look at everything. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to just read a a quick quote on biodynamics just um, to give people a sense um, this is a book called Agriculture Course. Um, it's the birth of the biodynamic method, and it was um, there were eight lectures that were put together by Rudolf Steiner. But it says um, here that this is a problem of nutrition. So biodynamics came to be because um, even though food was more or less in the 20s done in a pretty organic way mm-hmm. by nowadays standards and not terribly industrial yet, mm-hmm. they noticed that like seeds weren't taking, like they weren't taking after a certain amount of time. Okay. And they noticed that plants like nutrition was a problem in, yeah. um, due to the fact that like soil was dead, you know, sure. there just wasn't life around. Yeah. And so Rudolf Steiner says, this is a problem of nutrition. Nutrition as it is today does not supply the strength necessary for manifesting the spirit in physical life. A bridge can no longer be built from thinking to will and action. Food plants no longer contain the forces needed for this. So basically, biodynamics wasn't born out of this need to like make biodynamic wine or make vines. It was done to try to make healthier food. Yeah. And then just to, to... like follow that up with a quote that he says, um, he set forth the basic new way of thinking about the relationship of earth and soil to the formative forces of the etheric, astral, and ego activity of nature. He pointed out particularly how the health of soil, plants, and animals depend upon bringing nature into connection again with the cosmic creative shaping forces. And I'll go into more about biodynamics in a moment, (laughs) but should we listen to movement number two? Yeah, let's do that. Before we get to that, let's talk about what a flower clock is and how he came up with this. Please. You know how we have scientific names for things, Uh, like, you know, Felis catus would be the domestic cat, or Homo sapiens Mm -hmm. being humans. So the father of that kind of language first of all, using two names to describe us scientifically and things like that, was a Swedish botanist, scientist, all the things, named uh, Carl Linnaeus. And 
Carl, uh, first of all, his last name is spelled a thousand different ways, depending on the, the point at his life. But Linnaeus is what we're going with for this episode. In 1748, he wrote, I can't remember if it was a book or a paper, about the idea of having a garden or just an area where you have this garden that throughout the day blooms at certain times, depending on you know where the sun is or the time, well, the time of day. Um, and so that's where Jean-Francais got the idea. So the second movement, it, that's the Cupid's dart. Yep, Cupid's dart, which are kind of these purpley blue, they look kind of like a daisy, you know, how they have those petals that kind of splay out from the middle. Uh, that's what Cupid, Cupid's dart is. And, and this movement is great because right away you'll hear this just delightful interplay between the oboist and the clarinet player. And that is kind of a recurring thing that happens throughout there's a lot of this really great back and forth, particularly between oboe and clarinet, but also between the oboe and all of the woodwinds. There's lots of um, music that, or, or, you know, he writes in kind of a chamber music style in a lot of ways. So he, he'll be writing for like little duos or trios in the orchestra as opposed to the whole orchestra playing at once. So that's what we get to hear in Cupid's Dart, the second movement by Jean Francais, The Flower Clock. sneaks in there. Bassoon added. So now it's clarinet, bassoon, and oboe. So that's a little bit of the second movement. Cupid's dart. Didn't. Okay, so a uh, little bit of trivia. This beautiful little light indigo flower. Go for um, it. Cupid's dart gets its name. Why? In ancient, supposedly, yeah. in ancient Greece, um, they use this to make a love potion. Cute. Hails from, for the most part, southwestern Europe, northern Africa, but a beautiful flower. Check it out. Um, so, and I don't mean to make biodynamics complicated because it is really a hard topic to get your mind around, especially if you've never like done the preps, if you've never worked in a biodynamic vineyard or, or property. I worked in New Zealand in a biodynamic vineyard and farm um, a couple handful of years ago, and. You know, I, I did it because I wanted to learn what I had read about so so avidly, yeah. but I also was curious, like, do you see these results? And right. they say from the time that you convert to biodynamics, doing all these preparations that I'm about to talk about, it will take approximately seven years to start seeing results. But then once you see those results, you know, the money you're spending is n so little compared to other types of farming and fertilizers and herbicides and stuff like that, that it makes such a big difference. So, and why is this pertinent to today? Yeah. Um, because as Emily is talking about all these different, we're talking about different flowers and and the flower clock, in wine, people that would, you know, they they maybe drink more natural wine or they, they like biodynamic wines, there are days of the biodynamic calendar that we can drink according to it. And that's a, a concept that many people issue and say this is not, this is total mumbo jumbo, meaning there's there are root days yeah. and fruit days, leaf days, and flower days. And of course, as, as it sounds, the days that you wouldn't want to drink wine are in the root days and the leaf days. Why? Because if a, it may taste weedier, it may taste not as fruity, so okay. you'll get more of the maybe harder characteristics of a wine that may not be quote-unquote as enjoyable as if the wine is in full swing, right? Yeah. Which is on a flower or a fruit day. Yeah. And people, when they ask, they think that that's crazy. I say, you know what? You have to follow the same diet. You have to drink it at the same time. Yeah. You have to not be on your menstrual cycle if you're a woman or a few days before. <laughs> but taste, buy a wine and taste it 
and then buy that exact same wine and taste it on a different according to according yeah. to that. and you'll notice that it, the damn thing tastes different you know so that's where this comes from if you, yeah. people are wondering like well besides farming like well and because this wine was biodynamically farmed correct correct yeah correct yep and i would say that i've now i've thankfully had this bottle four different times yeah. and it has been there's not like bottle variation because it yeah. um, but you can taste that it's fruitier today than on than it was a couple days ago is when today I had a it. Fruit day today or? is a fruit day. Okay. And so what is biodynamics? People, now you know we're looking for paying attention. You're looking for mm-hmm. healthy soil. It's kind of an all-encompassed farm where you're not hopefully getting a ton of stuff from outside. What you need to do is you're doing two important preps to make. One is called prep 500. And you're basically taking a cow horn. You fill it with dung. Okay. Cow dung. For six months, you bury it. So you're doing this over the autumn and the winter months. And you'll notice that they attract a ton of earthworms. In the spring, you'll remove the cow horn. You'll mix it with some water. And you'll do it at, you know, a 25 grams of that. So you're using a super small amount. If you yeah. make coffee every morning and you make a pour over, you know that 25 grams is next to nothing. Out of 13 liters of water, and you that'll be for an acre. And you'll spray that around. And that will attract earthworms, and you'll that's a start wow. of the process. Wow. Okay, so that that's something that you would do, you know, I supposedly once a year. Um, you might bury them in several different parts yeah. of a of a farm. Yeah. Preparation five hundred one. You're taking cow horn and you're filling it with powdered quartz, so silica, which okay. silica is eighty percent of the earth's. Um, like outer layer is silica. Okay. So a very important mineral. And you're doing it at the opposite time of preparation 500. So this is preparation 501. You'll take this, you'll mix it in a, a different proportion, but you'll spray this in the wind. You'll do it, you know, kind of on a breezy day and you'll, like, you put a backpack on and pump it and you're just kind of spraying it around. And this silica in this cow horn basically increases photosynthesis. <laughs> and people think that's nuts, but if you work on a farm or you work in a vineyard where you apply that to one mm-hmm. and don't apply it to another yeah. and go look at it two days later, yeah. one is slightly greener or more advanced. Wow. Then it's like, you know, so just... Because you've done that. You've been on it. these. You've done this farming. Yeah. yeah. So it's ridiculous. And I guess we'll I'll leave it at that because then we'll go into the next set of preps and what those are used for. Um, yeah. After we listen to some, yeah, uh, movement let's check out three. the third movement. The third movement is the torch thistle, and this is so cool. This one is uh, gorgeous. Uh, the torch thistle apparently blooms around ten in the morning. Funny thing about a flower clock, they kind of don't work really. Uh, they they kind of do, but it's so dependent. As you are saying, nature does what nature does. Mm-hmm. So. Just because a flower is supposed to bloom at three in the morning, it might not bloom till four in the morning, depending on where you live. You know what I mean? So you, you can't. Or there may be a hailstorm and it's not going to bloom at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So so it's really not, you know, some of them work really well and you can go out and be like, oh, it must be four o'clock. But uh, some of them don't. You know, there's varying yeah. degrees of success to doing this, but it's still a badass idea. So anyway, here's Torch Thistle. This. John Delancey. This was my favorite movement out of all of them if I had to choose a favorite um, and I at about one minute yeah which is a short movement yeah I almost makes me almost want to cry mm. because it's so like placid and just so calming Beautiful. and comforting This is cool because it's in 12.8. That's the meter. So the beat uh, that the conductor is doing. Can you can you sing that or can you oh, yeah. dup, up, up, yeah. up, 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 up yeah. for us? Yeah. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 
9, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 1. John DeLancey has always been praised for his just big, warm sound mm-hmm. out of an oboe because oboes can be very um, harsh isn't really fair, but they're piercing. It's a piercing instrument, but just beautiful sound. Oh, and just that note, is that someone yeah. saying goodbye? Are they smelling a flower for the first time that they got their scent back, you know, because they didn't have it? <laughs> yeah. Are they, like, kissing someone for the first time? Like, what's happening there? Like, it's just so, it's just so good. It's a beautiful one. Beautiful. The torch thistle got its name in English, supposedly, because Native Americans used these, they're cacti, so we didn't yes. really talk about what they are. They're cacti that their um, actual stalk kind of looks very... Um, like a column, kind of yeah. shoots up like a column, and of course has that beautiful pinkish, usually, uh, yep. flower on the top that's yep. naturally spiky as well. But there have been documents that Native Americans used to use these as torches, Oh, these tall things. So that's where the torch thistle gets its name. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very cool thing. I I got really, this this translation through me for a bit. I had to research and find a right place where it was translated properly Mm -hmm. because it kept translating its Queen of the Night, (laughs) which I think can be a nickname for Torch Thistle, but Queen of the Night is much more commonly the Orchid. Cool. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Torch Thistle. Torch Thistle. Good stuff. Beautiful. So So, so pretty. So how did someone figure out that if they put cow dung in a cow horn and buried it, it would attract earthworms. That I can't tell you. I know that Rudolf Steiner did a lot of these practices himself, obviously, first. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if someone turned him on to that or if yeah. he tried it and it worked. Yeah. Um, I mean, clearly someone learned Well, that. So, And someone was intuitive enough to know that why would I, you know, why are we... We're applying a lot of things, much like modern medicine, we're applying a lot of whatever preparations or herbicides or fungicides or things like that on a top level. Mm-hmm. Rarely are people going below the surface right. to do some work. Right. And and that takes time and that yes. takes energy. And so, but it makes sense that if you're working to dynamize your soil, mm-hmm. yeah, why would you do that? from above. I yeah. granted sometimes you need to aerate or you might plant some legumes or sprinkle some clover around Cover to crops Im- or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. To improve nitrogen, but wh- like so um so yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So go on. So let's speak about um uh, most people I think would argue that or not argue that composting is smart um Super if you're doing smart. it right and yeah. um it ends up, you know, you're using a lot of waste to create a great Fertilizer, basically. Um, And so part of the, you know, you're composting and you're, um, that's one important part of biodynamics. Another are these things called cowpat pits. It's exactly what it sounds like. Nice. I never thought that part of my wine career would involve shit and a lot (laughs) of shit. But, and I'm not the type to like wash my clothes every day, but man, when I was working on the biodynamic vineyard, I had to, because you know what? Things got shitty. Um, So we had cows. My favorite was Buttercup. Dang it. Buttercup was so cute. And you'd go and you'd collect the cow pies and you would put them on a tractor. We'd We'd bring the cart back. We'd sprinkle these with some eggshells that we had chickens. So we would grind up the eggs, bake them first, and then grind them up. Bake the eggshells? You bake them first, you dry them out. Yep. Okay. Grind them in a mortar and pestle. You know how long that yeah. takes on a Sunday this afternoon, just rainy, just outside, just grind, grinding. There's always something to do, right? Yeah. So that, and then some basalt. So that okay. can come in the form of um, like seaweed, kelp, things like that that's dried. Just powder okay. that in, in a certain ratio. Okay. We just always were like sprinkle, sprinkle. It's bio D. We don't, we're not going to measure. Um, <laughs> okay. And then you would massage with good energy, good intention. You'd massage all of those things into the shit. 
Wow. And what would you do with that shit? You would pack it in. Sometimes you'd go sprinkle it around things. Yeah, yeah. But you would put it in a brick. Imagine like a embedded rectangle in the floor. Yeah. That is three-dimensional, obviously. Yeah. And it's brick-lined. Okay. Open on the top. And you yeah. would put in this newly yeah. Gently massaged with love. Yep. Cow shit. Yes. And then you're going to use, so there's biodynamic preps 502, 503, 504, 505, 506, and 507. There's a 508, but we won't go there. So 502 is yarrow. Um, and Yarrow the plant? Yarrow the plant. Okay. 503 is chamomile. I can tell you why if you're interested. 504 is nettle. 505 is oak bark, 506 is dandelion, and these all have different properties. So like, for example, yarrow has like light forces in, you know, the form of like potassium, sulfur, uh, you know, oak bark has a lot of um, calcium, it regulates calcium, it rages the pH in your soil. So you have 506 is dandelion, 507 is valerian, okay? Okay. You make a little hole about the size of, you know, maybe you take out, say, a fourth of a cup of dung. Okay. You create holes and you sprinkle the smallest amount of already prepared yarrow in there. And yarrow has already been prepared in a different way. It has to do with the stag's bladder. I'm not even going to go there. Holy cow. But so you put that in there, you put, and you cover it up. Okay. You put the chamomile, cover it up. Valerian, you cut cut it up, or excuse me, you, cu- you put it in a little hole, cover that up, and then you put like a burlap sack on the top. And this is all in that in the bricked yep. hole in the ground. Yep. So you've got a full of shit, full of shit with and homeopathic amounts, a couple okay. drops of okay. all these. Okay. You cover it with um, burlap. Burlap. Sprinkle a little more of valerian. Give it a little, hopefully, a good little blessing. Happy day. Yeah. And it is amazing if you come back in like a week. Yeah. You can already smell. It doesn't smell like it doesn't smell like dung like days later. Wow. And all of a sudden after a week it's starting to smell like soil. <laughs> and that should take months if that were just left yeah. out, right? Yeah. So then you use those that cow pat pit once that has turned into soil. Yeah. Then you will use that. I mean not I shouldn't say basically it is. It's soil like yeah. like a soil. Like a soil. You'll smell that mm-hmm. and when it's ready You'll go and mix that up with rainwater. You'll stir it up. And then so you're you'll, making mud. Yep. And then you're going and spraying that around, or you're going and you're applying it to say, um, we planted olive trees, and those olive trees are very weak. They were really new, they were young. So we went and we just at the bottom of the um at the bottom of the like the stalk, yeah. we, you know, just Massage the stock and yeah. put a little bit on the ground of that cow pat pit. Yeah. Now yeah. kind of soilish. Now soily. Oh. And those those little suckers were so strong in like two months they were taking. Wow. You know, and it sounds like a lot of mumbo jumbo, but if it just becomes a rhythm in which you do things, it's pretty um, it, it sounds no, it does no, it doesn't sound like mumbo jumbo. To me anyhow. It it sounds like what people probably did hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, or whatever, to take care of their stuff. I mean, to me, it just seems like it's kind of a sign of industrialization to make things as simple as possible and produce the most. So this book was printed, it was collected, but these uh, were obviously given before his death in 1925, this book that I'm reading from. So he gave these lectures, um, I think it was like a year before he died, actually. And One thing he writes in here, just to speak to your point, he says, according to official estimates, American agriculture pays a yearly bill of $5 billion in crop losses for disregarding this warning, meaning sickness of plants and nutrition Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. et cetera, and another $750 million on keeping down insect pests. People are beginning to realize that insect poisons fall short of solving the problem, especially since the destruction of some of the insects succeeds only in producing new, more resistant kinds. Let's talk about sickness, human sickness, like so many things, right? So this is basically just a way to be attentive and make things as healthy and dynamic and vital as possible, which in the end, um, if you have a natural producer, you walk onto their property and you immediately feel it Hmm. like things feel everything's just healthy and happy yep and well and just and when it's not healthy and happy 
it'll work itself out. Like you have to be doing things, but you're not going to go put a Band-Aid on, you know, a pest problem. Like that yeah. will work itself out probably with go plant a tree that those pests like to eat yeah. right alongside of the vineyard so that they're not attacking your vineyard, you know? Like yeah. don't go apply an insecticide that's later just going to attract some other problem, right? you know? So it ends up being a pretty inspiring visit when you're able to to meet yeah. with people that are doing that. I have more questions, but shall we listen to another yes, movement? Yes, please. The flower clock. So the fourth movement, uh, Malabar Jasmine, beautiful and very fragrant, flowers at noon. So let's listen to a little bit of this. And I love the transition to the fourth movement. Can we, do you mind if we listen to the transition Not from the torch thistle Not to the Nikant? Du Malabar. I love it. I feel like Barbara Streisand should do a musical to this. Yeah, <laughs> this is very, like, so jazzy, kind of cabaret-y, kind of influenced for sure. Clarinet comes back in just seamlessly like that. I love that. Should we go right into, just to kind of back-to-back music, go right into Belle sure. de Nuit? Sure. To 5 p.m.? Is this the nightshade? Yeah, nightshade is, that'll, that shit will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's listen to it. Yeah, this one's really pretty. This one's also in 12.8. Clarinet. I just love how prominent the clarinet is in this piece. It's really lovely. So John DeLancey taught at Curtis Institute in Philadelphia and was its director for many years, actually. His son, who's also John DeLancey, as I made reference to earlier, is an actor. And for those of you who watched Days in the 80s, he was <laughs> Eugene on Days of Our Lives. Really? Yeah, Eugene <laughs> and Calliope. And uh, he was Q on Star Trek The Next Generation. covered the important parts of what biodynamics is and what it it's good for and how people achieve it. So let's talk about this producer. So Stefano Bellotti, this is his last vintage. His daughter, Alaria, um, is now making the wine. So it'll be fun to see in 2018, yeah. or excuse me, in 20, the 19 vintage, yes. what that's like. Stefano Bellotti, so he, you know, he was from the country. He moved to Genoa was a city boy for a while and decided to move back to a family kind of rundown farm that was, I think they bought it in the thirties or something like that. And okay. they may have gone on vacation there or something, but they didn't really do much with the farm. Mm-hmm. Um, and he decided to move back, I think in the sev- like late or mid seventies. Okay, He moved back in, so it's in Piemonte, uh, within the Gavi region, which is a region very well known for white wine based off of the Cortese grape. Um, and he's been organic since the early 80s. He's been biodynamic since 1985, like long before biodynamics was wow. even cool. And there's a really cool interview that he did about why biodynamics is really hasn't been embraced like organics and has a lot to do with industrialization and a lot to do with not having the time to 
you know, be patient and be diligent and, you know, be present basically. Um, but so he's got a fully polycultural farm, grains, vegetables, oh. um, milk, you know, from livestock. He's got goats, chickens, wow. freaking swans. He's got cows. <laughs> um, and he, or he had, I should say, and he wasn't really going f- to make wine. He had vines, mm-hmm. but he, he ended up producing wine on a commercial, barely commercial scale, because that's what his land did best, basically. So he did them all, Mm. and then he still does the, or, you know, his family still is doing them all, but the vines were what seemed like the healthiest and the ones that were year after year producing the Mm -hmm. bounties. So he Mm -hmm. was like, well, that's what I'll do. Guess we're making wine. Guess we're making wine. (laughs) Um, And he basically said in, in something that he wrote, he said, soil is like a companion organism to the farm. Like if it yeah. weren't for healthy soil, we'd be toast. Yeah. And in how he got into more of like the natural wine scene is he, I mean, not only is, are his wines, they've been native yeast fermented for decades, yeah. unsulfured, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but he, so he was so hellbent. I'm from Gavi. I'm going to have Gavi, the name of the region, like Rioja or Bordeaux. I'm going to have Gavi on my label. Yeah. And he had a small plot that was, he decided to plant fruit trees or something in, okay. in the middle of the vineyard. And that, you couldn't do that according, and still have Gavi on your label. And he's like, so oh. it needs to be like basically monoculture for me to call it Gavi. So that one plot that he yeah. single vineyard, he didn't have it carry the Gavi name. Okay. All of his other wines or most of his other wines did. Then he brought like some kind of easy drinking wine and it the color didn't pass. You know, ca- oh. Gavi's taste like run-of-the-mill Pinot Grigio basically when they've, okay. they're heavily sulfured and filtered and all that shit. Yeah. And the color, they looked at it and they were like, that this doesn't this doesn't pass. It doesn't and look he, like Gavi. And he probably, you know, showed up disheveled like he always did, you know, yeah. to appointment. So who knows if they just didn't like him, but they didn't like yeah. the color and they said, this can't say Gavi on it. And he was basically like, fuck it. Wow. <laughs> and only a few of his wines carried Gavi from from there on out. Wow. So this is his Belotti Bol, his uh, Le Pendu du Raison, 2018, which is made in the ancestral method in the Petnat fashion. It's unsulfured. It's basically juice that's been put in the bottle with just a touch of the residual sugar from the from the grapes mm-hmm. and fermented almost dry with some bubbles. I don't know. What do you think? Tell me what I it think smells it's like. It's delicious. I love it. Let me let me pour some more in your glass here. It smells a little bready, which I love, and but it also smells very fruity and ripe, like but like light colored fruits, maybe like apricots or something. There you go. Not the red ones. Like star fruit kind of has like this um I've never had star fruit. Kind of tastes like star fruit, white grapes. Yeah, I agree with you, like apricots, mm-hmm. stuff like that. This is a blend of Moscato Bianco and mm-hmm. the famous Gavi grape, Cortese. Um, what do you think about the palate? Very low, nice, flirtatious. Yeah, but it's bright too. Oh yeah, it's got a low brightness. Yeah, no, because it's I, not like super hectic. Like, but I mean, like low effervescence. Like it's very yeah. soft effervescence. Yeah. yeah, kind of flirtatious effervescence. Like it's not like full yeah. on, but it's just yeah. Yeah, okay. it's really good. Would you consider this? I saw a website. I was just kind of checking out more info, see if anything yeah. fine. And they said off dry. I was like. Mm. I don't think this feels like it's got residual sugar. It's definitely fruity to beat the band because yeah. that's what Moscato Bianco usually yeah. in a natural vein can smell like. But I don't know. What do you think? Is it drink off dry? I don't know that I think that at all. No. I mean, gosh, if it is, it's just tickling yeah, maybe. the off dry camp. But it doesn't taste yeah. like it's got a lot of residual sugar. Maybe some bottles do. Why does that make it off dry? Um... What? What exactly. what does that mean off dry? And oh, thank you. What yeah. does residual residual sugar have to do with it? Good question. Um off dry means that it is not dry. It's just got a tinge of sugar. Yeah. On the tip of the tongue. Um it has nothing to do with how fruity it is and doesn't have anything to do with how it smells. Residual sugar means like Snickers. A Snicker yeah. bar has a ton of residual sugar. Like yeah. it's sugar that is left over, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and something like, a, let's say, a, a dry Cortese would have no residual sugar or very little, 
enough to you could there's a yeah. scale but the m grape the moscato bianco also um can be a dry wine but there's a lot of producers that make moscato with a little bit of sweetness which is why people go i don't like hey you want to taste this moscato i don't like sweet wines and you're like oh god damn it it's dry <laughs> you know like don't just blanket statement that yeah but, so yeah. i flip and love it i like I'm trying to refrain from drinking it because I could just kind of re keep reaching yeah. over and keep going. Yeah. I don't know. So what else do we got? We got a couple more to listen to, hopefully. Just two more movements. Let's do them back to back. The uh, 7 o'clock flower, which is the sixth movement, is morning geranium. Morning as in morning dove or morning veloce of someone, not as in morning glory. Like, Yeah, it says geranium triste. Which is yeah, sad. sad geranium. Sad geranium. Sad geranium. Aw. So the 7 p.m. hour is for me all yeah. the time. Just it's before, it's after happy hour and before I go out. So just kidding. Kind and then of. the uh, final movement is called Night Flowering Catchfly uh, that blooms at approximately 9 p.m. And, you know, we're going to hear more even before this piece is over of these long stretches that really don't have any strings at all for an orchestral piece. You know, just it almost reminds me a little bit more of a concerto grosso, even though it's totally not. But uh, we've talked about concerto grosso in the past where there's like groups of soloists as opposed to just one soloist mm -hmm. instead of being a concerto. A concerto grosso has more than one soloist. And this kind of reminds me of that, even though it's not that. Uh, it just is fun to kind of think of it in that way with all these little clarinet solos and bassoon solos and flute solos and stuff. So Cool. All right, so let's listen to a little bit of these last two movements. Geranium triste. The leaves look kind of like carrot leaves. Do they? Yep. Is this four four? Is this what? Four four time? What is yes. this? Okay. The thing so characteristic of this era of classical music or this type of classical music is just there's really almost nothing offensive about it at all. Mm -hmm. It's just beautiful writing, lush writing, uh, lots of nice woodwinds, lots of beautiful string writing when those moments happen, uh, beautiful colors, just so, so unoffensive. Yeah. You wonder if um, if Francais was like a... He seemed, like was he a happy guy? He kind of seemed sure like, seemed like it. Yeah, I mean, if his if his demeanor at all is reflected by his compositions, it's yeah. like, and yeah. not not that this is obviously like all of his other compositions, but this is just right. so obviously so pretty. And it certainly is his most famous. Oh, it is. Yeah, okay. definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Didn't he compose his first? You said he was a virtuoso. Didn't he compose his first work when he was like? Six or ten or something. Five, like. I think. I think his first published piece was when he was ten. So the geranium trees, um, it's clove scented. It uh, supposedly um, is, if you make an infusion with it, it can help with diarrhea. Just to throw that in there. Oh, excellent. Um, are we at night flowering yet, the Selene? Yeah, so this is the finale. Very boisterous. Probably the most from the orchestra we've heard since the beginning. But mm -hmm. yeah. so this The flower is a, clock. This is such a cool flower. It... Um, it's a sign of supposedly like a disturbed habitat when you f you it, you can find it in like um, it's a weed in a lot of like industrial grain crops and stuff like that, which is interesting. Um, it is kind of either white, kind of really light pink, um, which is really actually quite pretty. And it opens obviously at night and attracts these like night moths, which is kind of interesting. Amazing. Is it Silen Noctefleur, right? That's the name of it in French? Yeah. Which... Yeah, yes, it looks like that, yes. Then translates to, like, catchfly or night flowering Silen, or there are, like, nine million There's, different... Yeah, a thousand different words for it. Common names for it, but... Super pretty. Yeah. Thank you uh, to Carl Linnaeus 
And thanks amazing. to Rudolf Steiner for paying attention and spreading the word, um, especially, you know, this was obviously post-World War I, but it was pre-World War II. And after World War II, one of the main reasons biodynamics didn't take off was because, A, the Nazis hated Rudolf Steiner. I mean, the world over was into industrialization in the yeah. 50s, right? So yep. um, biodynamics didn't stand a chance until people realized, like, this is not working, yep. you know? Um, yep. And that usually takes a few decades because we're stupid um, <laughs> as humans. I, I don't mean to be, like, pessimistic, <laughs> but I, I, I do kind of think that at times. And I'll include, um, speaking of Rudolf Steiner, I'll include the name of the book that I was referencing. Yes. Um, and the, the name of the publisher and the translator. And then I'll also include, um, there's a great book called Grasping the Nettle by Peter Proctor. Um, that's another biodynamic book that's based a lot on Peter Proctor's work in India. And thank you to the Belotis for um, embracing not only biodynamics, but uh, great winemaking, natural winemaking, and to Ilaria, the best for the future, because she's got uh, big shoes to fill, but um, people people are saying great things about what she's doing. Good. So, to scores and pours. To scores and pours. My glass is too far away, so I'm drinking out of the bottle. Chin -chin. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with myself, Jill Mott, and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours, and we're on Instagram at scoresandpours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc. <laughs> <laughs>